Kia ora and welcome to Insight, I'm Philippa Tolley. This week, our mental health system. New Zealanders are increasingly seeking help from mental health services. But how are those services coping as numbers soar? Insight explores the current state of New Zealand's mental health system and looks at what more can be done. Wellington man Darren Nielsen flicks the switch on the jug and stares at the block of council flats across the way. In the cramped bedsit, he says he'd like to live somewhere with some outside space. I'd like to be living in a proper house with a backyard. This is too small for me. Way too small. And it's um, hard to keep, keep tidy sometimes. I get a bit of help with that. Darren Nielsen has a range of mental health issues, and although he gets support of various kinds, he still feels his treatment in the community is not what he needs. And those who work at the acute end in hospitals often feel the system isn't working well there either. They include this nurse, who we'll call Sue. We that work in the sector recognise that we are in crisis, been in crisis for many years, which is quite heartbreaking when you know that you've got more to offer your patients, but you're getting less and less every year. A Wellington GP and academic Tony Dow says those who work on the front line are doing a great job, even though everyone acknowledges the service is stretched. We need to acknowledge that this is a big problem for all of us. We can support each other, that people should be prepared to talk about mental health problems that they've got to each other, and um, if you like to put pressure on the services, even though the services are, are stretched, because only by doing that will we actually be able to find out what the full extent of problems are and begin to find solutions for that. I'm Catherine Hutton, and in this Insight we talk to those at the coalface of mental health about the challenges the system is facing. Oh, this is one of our two main, main, uh, Since 2003, the number of New Zealanders seeking mental health treatment has been on the rise. In 2015, record numbers turned to mental health services, with 160,000 people, or 3.5% of the population, seeking help. That included 15,000 people who sought inpatient care. Many of those posed a serious danger to themselves or others as a result of their mental illness. Nurses who work in these wards describe the conditions as fraught. This nurse, who we'll call Sue, likens working in an acute inpatient ward to a battleground. You're prepared for the unexpected all the time. You're very vigilant. Eyes in the back of your head. Um, it can get a little bit scrappy because people might need more support than you can give them. It's emotionally challenging on every level. Another nurse, who we'll call Mary, agrees. It can be hectic. It all depends what type of patients you've got in there. Sometimes you've got to watch them because they could go AWOL, high risk of AWOL, which we do have, patients escaping. While many sections of mental health care come under the spotlight, the situation in hospital seems to often reach breaking point, especially when it comes to staff. The challenging working environment appears to make it difficult to attract and retain staff, meaning double shifts are common. Sue agrees staff choose to accept the extra work, but in reality, there's often no choice. You end up doing doubles because there is nobody else to do it. Um, and your colleagues are stuck. It's usually a colleague that's stuck with, uh, I've got nobody to come in. There's somebody on the same level as yourself, another nurse who's looking after that shift after hours, um, and there is nobody else to call. So you, you have a choice to do doubles, 
but at the end of the day, a lot of us do it because we see that there's there is really no choice. We can just, we can go home, and we do, but there's nobody else going to come and, and fill that void. There is nobody else. Sue says her managers are telling those higher up there is nobody to fill the vacancies. Most of the applicants are new graduates because the pool of experienced staff is static. When I say that there's no staff, if our unit was to gain a staff member, it would probably be by taking them off another inpatient unit. Like if I was to leave, I might just go to another inpatient unit or vice versa. Somebody coming into our service has come from another inpatient unit. Um, new staff are coming from the postgraduate program, that's the ideal pool, and that seems to be what our operations managers believe is going to solve all, all of our problems. But even the new graduates only stay a year or two, long enough to look good on the CV, and then look elsewhere. Often, Mary says, to go and work in the community. We don't seem to retain them within, within the inpatient unit. A lot of them want to get out. Why do they want to leave? Because of the pressure, and they think it's better out in the community. Surprising or not, all those people that have gone, not one of them ha- has returned in patients. Because sometimes you get them back, you know, they, they, they're not happy working in the community. But these, the ones that have gone recently, they've never returned. We asked the three Auckland District Health Boards for the staffing levels in their acute mental health wards. They said the information could only be provided by going through the 20-day Official Information Act process. Auckland and Waitamata District Health Boards say they employed 39 graduate mental health nurses in the past year, but not all will work in acute wards. County's Manukau says it will shortly be opening a new acute mental health facility, which will have 60 beds at the start, increasing to 78, including what it describes as a state-of-the-art design which will enhance recovery for people. But Mary says staff are worried. It scares the staff. You know, where are they going to get the staff from? The People's Mental Health Report, released in 2015, was a crowd-funded study based on input from health professionals and service users. It noted that 90% of mental health patients sought help from the community, rather than through a hospital. But there are problems here too, and community services aren't getting anywhere close to the bulk of the funding. I think our last estimates that we were getting something like um, 28% of the mental health budget. That's Marion Blake, the head of Platform Trust, a national network of NGOs that provide a range of mental health and addiction services. She says there's been an erosion of services in the community. So it's all about district hospital services as opposed to district health services. Everybody you talk about DHBs, the first thing they think about is the local hospital. Actually, they're responsible for the whole of their population. It doesn't matter whether they're in, in a bed in the hospital overnight or not. That's led to the closure of a number of community organisations. Now, whether or not that's because of lack of funding or, or they just can't do it anymore, I mean, the cost pressures the community organisations are on are, are huge. So what we're seeing is some services going out to tender. So a district health board may have had 30 contracts with organisations in the community. They stop that, they go out to tender, and what happens is in the end six organisations are contracted. Now, sometimes that's the right thing to do, but actually there is no transparency about the money, how many services are being delivered, how many people are being seen. Take Wellington's Evolve Clinic, an inner-city one-stop shop where young people can access a suite of primary care services, 
including doctors, nurses, youth support workers and permanent counsellors. Yet in December, the clinic was forced to close its books to new clients because of what it says is a lack of funding and since then has turned away at least 800 people wanting to use their services. This man, who we'll call Henry, has used Evolve Services and says it's one of the few places, as a trans-queer person, he feels safe. For four years, they provided GP services, counselling and support services. And Evolve is a place anybody can come and feel safe. People know me by name. The receptionists are the most welcome and warm people. The nurses are always there to basically give you support, um, help you out and actually advocate for you. So... One of the greatest things about Evolve is they may not necessarily know directly how to help you, but they will always go ask somebody how to and they will always advocate. He says as a result of Evolve support, he was able to go to university and he feels the impact of those who are now not able to access services. I know one kid that I just want to help him because he comes from a very poor family and he's having to, he doesn't currently have a job and he lives off student allowance. Um, and he has to go because he's um, at a tech place that doesn't offer primary health, like Massey or Vic does. He has to pay out of pocket to go to Massey. Um, and he basically had to like, pay his course-related costs. It also means he can't access any primary health places that actually know how to advocate for himself for him. Now we've got counsellors down this way... Karen Monaghan is a nurse at the clinic. He says Evolve's situation isn't unique, and he knows of other one-stop shops and GP practices around the country that have been forced to stop accepting new clients because funding just isn't keeping up with demand. Like Marion, he's noted a drop in community services. Community drop-in centres have disappeared. You'd have to go and look at, talk to many of the NGOs because all their funding has been reduced. I remember years ago there was one major kind of social housing provider that did residential supported accommodation for people with long-term and enduring psychiatric illness. They lost them like $2 million a year. Big NGO services needing to merge, PHOs needing to merge. And as those things proceed... As the budgets get bigger, as the services become centralised, the people with the margins are the ones that always miss out because we, we focus on the most people through the door rather than the people at the margins with the greatest number of need. And he says that drop-in funding has correlated with a direct increase in the number of people begging on the capital streets. One of those is Darren Nielsen, who lives in a council flat. In the corner of the living room is a single bed, facing an old television which is playing the movie The Karate Kid. There are no sheets, and a squab from the couch doubles as a pillow. His worldly possessions are stuffed into banana boxes, pushed against the walls of the narrow room. Days are spent lying on the bed watching television, smoking rollies. He says once a day, Meals on Wheels call around. It's a struggle because I'm struggling financially and food-wise as well, so I haven't got much energy. I only get Meals on Wheels, which is only, only very small. It's not even enough for a full-grown man, really. And that's lasts me the whole... That's for the whole day. That's not just breakfast or lunch. That's, that's the whole three meals. Yeah, I usually go and beg for food. It's not very nice. I don't like it. Darren is under the care of outpatient mental health services for depression and anxiety. He has a support worker who visits three times a week to help with cleaning and shopping. 
a social worker coordinates his care, and two housing providers have been working with him to try and find other accommodation for him. He stays away from his GP, worried he will only get bad news about his emphysema. Despite this, he says most of his human contact comes at the end of a phone line. I ring up to Ica sometimes, quite a bit actually. There are addiction place, um, a phone counselling service for anybody who's, you know, a bit stressed out. And How often do you call them? I call them every night, just about. They're really good, they're helpful, friendly. They're just really good at what they do. Darren's friend Debbie Leyland pops in regularly to keep an eye on him. She does his washing and recently took him to work and income to get a food grant. One of his uh, illness is that he suffers from major anxiety and if you don't eat, well physically that can turn into like a anxiety and he just he's just not going to make it. She says the support worker does what she can, but she too has a pretty full workload. They take him to his appointments, like to see the psychiatrist, and they'll take him to wins if they've got time, but they basically just come in three times a week, come in, have a cup of tea, ask some how he is, and then they go on to the next one. His accommodation is provided through a community housing provider, Dwell Housing Trust. In a statement, it said it worked as more than a landlord and tries to get tenants the support they needed. However, Dwell also said in its experience there weren't enough housing options or specialist services to support people with complex needs. But this lack of residential facilities isn't confined to Wellington. An Auckland social worker, Andy Cowell, says because of the cost, increasingly those with mental illness are living on their own. Uh, There's limited uh, resources in the community. We um, used to have residential support facilities, but they're not seen as the... um, it's something that's required anymore, so there's hardly any of those facilities available now. Uh, the move is around independent living, and accommodation uh, is really, really tight. It's hard to find um, good accommodation. And with the housing pressures in Auckland, boarding houses are often the only option. Many of Andy Cow's clients are on the supported living benefit and have lost touch with family members or they don't live in the city. They're socially isolated and struggle to manage day-to-day issues. Invariably uh, are in boarding houses, which a lot of them are really shocking. Um, Awful places can be quite violent uh, places to be, um, being exploited by landlords who run their boarding houses. Um, You know, just not good places for people with that complex and high uh, and complex needs, you know, should be. And um, it's really, really difficult for somebody like myself and feel pretty bad when you put them into a boarding house which you know is not going to provide <laughs> the support that that person needs. Evolve News, Karen Monaghan, says one of the hardest things is trying to house someone who is homeless. I mean, I think many of the people that are on the street with bits of cardboard asking for money, they're not homeless. Some of them are, not all of them. Some of them have accommodation. But once you pay that basic thing of accommodation, you've got nothing left. And if you've set up a system where you've already figured out how you're living on the street and you know where you're going to keep your stuff safe, you know, it's a hard ask to convince somebody to, to make that step, you know. And, and there is no accommodation anyway. You, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day, they've been on the street for like two years. To put them on the waiting list for the City Council or Housing New Zealand, which is even longer, it's going to take months, if ever, you know. 
how do I get this person to the top of the list? Homeless and they're pregnant and they're on the street. It's like, and, and like 18 or 17. How do you get any more high priority than that? Tony Dowell is Professor of Primary Healthcare and Deputy Dean at the University of Otago, Wellington, and a Wellington GP. He says most people access mental health services through their GP, and he estimates 60% of all consultations with a family doctor have a significant emotional or psychological component. So the GP consultation itself is probably the, the prime vehicle whereby many, many people with psychological problems and mental health problems are being helped. And particularly if those, those problems are the commonest things that we would see, which is combination of anxiety and depression symptoms, uh, also problems to do with alcohol and substance use issues. So often those kind of issues discussed with the general practitioner and, if you like, a brief intervention plan put together, that's an effective start to treatment. He says GPs can also prescribe drugs and refer people to counselling, although he concedes cost is an issue. I think there are real issues over access at the moment. So for many New Zealanders, the cost of privately accessing uh, clinical psychologist or counselling <coughs> services is, is beyond what they could afford. Uh, and in fact, for some people, clearly going to the general practitioner and talking about the mental health problems would also be difficult and challenging from a financial point of view. As a result of those costs, he believes some people are delaying seeing a GP and waiting for their symptoms to get worse before they are seen at a hospital or outpatient clinic. Dr Mark Lawrence is the New Zealand Chair of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. He says for many people it's either an option of having to put food on the table or see a GP about their mental health. He says as a result, people with mild to moderate mental health conditions, which should be managed by a GP, are not seeking treatment when they should early on. What we're finding in mental health is that a lot of people are either not going and seeking help through their own either financial situations or resources. Um, and so the, the conditions are, are being left untreated for a, long, um, a longer period of time and then they're now presenting in secondary health care services like hospitals and community mental health situations and sometimes in crisis. And so then we, we as a service are then, because I work in, the, in, in um, hospital and community care, uh, then pick up cases we probably wouldn't have seen uh, in the past. And that has implications for his work and how comprehensively he can do all he would like to. If I'm tied up at a clinical level doing what I would consider possibly a, a primary care level job, it means that then it takes time away from, from the other, other aspects that I, that, I'm, that I should be doing as well. So I have three roles and I work in crisis, I work in inpatient, I work in community. So that means it's time away from, say, doing a family meeting with the with the family that's come on with their, you know, their loved one that's come on with their first episode psychosis. One of the nurses we've already heard from, Sue, says because of the demands on those working in the community, people are waiting longer to be seen. Unless you're at the high end and it looks like it's something that could be severe, like you're going to take your life, that kind of thing, you don't get seen quick enough. So you might be waiting for anywhere between weeks and months. She says there's talk of addressing this problem, but she's sceptical. So you've got all these wonderful um, reports coming out, but people like myself, so my colleagues, um, people across other health boards that I speak to regularly, we think they're laughable 
because, you know, we're going to make it possible for you to be seen quicker. I'm sorry, but you saying that you're going to be seen quicker, you're not going to be seen quicker because you've still got the same staff you've always had and there's just not enough of them. Which raises the question of funding. District health boards are funded by the Ministry of Health to provide mental health services. There's a so-called ring fence of funding of $1.4 billion each year for mental health services. The Ministry says the ring fence means that although a DHB has discretion over where it allocates funding and can increase its allocation to mental health, it cannot spend less than the previous year on mental health. It says it monitors this funding through the DHB district annual planning process. But Marion Blake says it's very difficult to find out how the money is being spent. There's nobody monitoring the utilisation of the ring fence. The Mental Health Commission, as, as when it was monitoring, doesn't exist in the same way anymore. So the, there is no independent voice or overview looking at how mental health money is being spent in New Zealand. Psychiatrist Mark Lawrence says mental health has always been underfunded. If people want our healthcare system to improve... Um, I mean, it needs to be funded adequately to meet the needs and demand of the populations we serve. Last month, the government announced details of a $100 million social investment fund to be invested in a package of 17 new initiatives aimed at helping New Zealanders suffering mental health conditions, as well as focusing on services and early intervention. The initiatives have drawn a mixed response. Dr Lawrence says he likes that the initiatives focus on areas of current need. And they are uh, uh, children and and youth, uh, particularly in crisis, because we know that their contacts are increasing significantly. Uh, Adults that are presenting crisis, um, also that's a high-need area which which needs to be focused on. The other key area which I think they're focusing on, which I think is, is brilliant, is really looking at developing... How can you uh, get young people to develop resilience um, and better ways of coping with, um, uh, you know, the the difficulties of of life? Professor Tony Dell is also welcoming. And those initiatives, many of them are exciting. I think the ideas of moving some of those interventions more into early intervention, into preventive care, those are important initiatives, but they are just initiatives. And behind that... Uh, on on a day-to-day basis, there is core activities uh, supporting the many, many people, both with mild to moderate disorder, but also people who are accessing secondary care services. Um, The need for supporting that will go on beyond new initiatives. But Kieran Monaghan is less optimistic. I mean, when you look at the suite of the initiatives, the 17 initiatives, I think that the the people that are going to obtain the greatest wellness from these are IT developers. I don't think it's going to be young people. When I think about my practice, working at the front line of an inner-city youth mental youth one-stop shop, I almost never recommend IT stuff. I mean, the thing that is important, I think, for young people is some of that face-to-face contact, the security that you can come in somewhere and shut the door and, and you know, and speak your darkest stuff. You know, not just follow, push the button and go to the next screen. Labour's health spokesperson David Clark is another who is not impressed. It is really, I think we have to say, tinkering because they're all pilot programmes. There's no full-time workers at the coalface as a result. Uh, and it, it shows that the government really lacks the commitment to tackling what is a growing crisis in our country. He says the Ministry of Health is failing to provide the strategic leadership on mental health. Many factors lie outside of their control, but the government does have a role to play. And this government 
has failed to step up to the plate. Insight asked the Health Minister, Jonathan Coleman, for an interview, but he declined. Meanwhile, New Zealand First is promising to implement the full implications from the Mason report, as well as providing more resources for child and youth mental health services. Since 1994, the Ministry has produced almost a dozen strategy and policy documents on mental health. One of the most recent is rising to the challenge 2012-2017, to the Mental Health and Addiction Service Development Plan. The policy was intended to ensure people had better access to quality mental health and addiction services. It focused on early intervention, better communication between primary and secondary services, ensuring money was well spent and improving care for those with the highest needs. Marion Blake was part of the advisory group involved in that work, which stopped meeting last year. There hasn't been an evaluation. There was over 100 deliverables and there's been no evaluation, there's been nothing. And now there is no plan because that's run out, it's out of date. The plan, which runs until the end of this year, says the Ministry will monitor progress every year and make the results available on its website. But the only evaluation Insight could find was an update from the first year. The Ministry says there was never any requirement to evaluate the plan and DHBs are able to develop and review their own strategies. Professor Tony Dow says there needs to be clearer strategic leadership and direction. We should really begin to harness the potential and the integration between primary care, secondary care and the amazingly good work that non-governmental organisations, NGOs and local communities are doing. Now, that's a, that's a big ask. We're looking at quite a complex joining together of different groups, but I think it would be very helpful to take a kind of a whole system approach. He says it's important to realise that it's not just a health problem and it needs to include education, social welfare, corrections and justice. Until recently, there's been a lack of political will to address mental health issues at the level at which they need to address. So we are talking about mental health problems which affect, according to the Mental Health Survey, you know, 40% of all New Zealanders over their, their lifetime. The Ministry of Health says it's working with a range of government agencies, including Education, Social Development and the Social Investment Agency, on a plan to improve mental health services that reflect the complexity of the problem. But for Sue, a mental health nurse, an increase in staffing and money is urgently needed to improve the mental health system. Why aren't the health boards, you know, taking in bigger amounts of people into the new entrance programs? It's the only way that you're going to strengthen the workforce. It all comes down to money. Those, those courses are all funded by the health boards in conjunction with the university. Back in the bedsit, Darren says he just wants someone to listen. Yeah, it's kind of like we've just been dumped here and forgotten, really. A social worker with many years' experience in mental health, Phil Williams, thinks the goals are, in essence, pretty simple. And he cites the former New Zealand Prime Minister, Norman Kirk, who had a straightforward vision for what New Zealanders needed for a happy life. And those things that Norm Kirk talked about are really simple. Somewhere to live, a job, someone to love and something to look forward to. If you asked any social worker in mental health how important somewhere to live was, if you asked any occupational therapist in mental health how important a job was, if you asked any psychologist how important something to look forward to was, 
And we all know how important it is to have somebody to love. I'm Catherine Hutton, and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to get in touch or share your thoughts on this programme, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at insight at radioNZ.co.nz or our Twitter handle is at InsightRNZ. That programme was produced by me, Philippa Tolley, with technical production by William Saunders. If you'd like to play or podcast Insight, visit our webpage at radioNZ.co.nz or head to iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe, rate and even give us a review. Thanks for listening. <laughs>